Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. Hello and welcome to the Women Today podcast. We've had some interesting discussions this week about things like whether women need to be mothers in order to be good leaders and whether or not Lewis Hamilton should have been allowed in the Royal Box at Wimbledon wearing that outfit. But let's start with an online video by local free runner Will Sutton that's gone viral. No matter where I am in the world, whenever I tell people I'm from the Isle of Man, they only know for one thing. But I see it in a different way. Well, free running, it's pretty much using your body to do all sorts of flips, tricks, movement in and around your environment, wherever you are. It can be like flat grounds or along walls, railings, wherever you are, really. And how did you know that you had this skill? I mean, did you one day say to your mum, do you know what, I'm just going to go outside and play and start jumping off walls and running over (laughs) chimneys? How did it come about? It was me and my best mate, Owen. He's from the Isle of Man too. But I remember we watched a documentary on Channel 4 about 10 years ago called Jump Britain and we were just like blown away by it. We'd just seen all these guys jumping around and we were like, wow. So literally we went to school, researched it a little bit and then just copied everything. Did you have any accidents at all? Yeah, like you have accidents on the way but that kind of comes with it. It's just, you know, knocks here and there. What age were you when you first started doing your free running? I was 13 when I first started. So what's your favourite skill that you do whilst you're free running? Um, I love doing sort of like from high to low or low to high movements, sort of like as fast as I can and as smooth as I can. That's sort of my style of movement, I guess. And have you always been very sporty? Yeah. We always tried like BMX and skateboard and all that sort of stuff, but nothing really clicked as much as free running. Are you a bit of an adrenaline junkie? Yeah, (laughs) I think so. (laughs) I do love doing this sort of stuff. You've just made a short film called Home Free, which has gone crazy on social media. I mean, my, my news feed on Facebook is full of it from just people sharing and also <laughs> on Twitter. And I'm so happy for you. But for anyone that hasn't actually seen this short film, can you just tell me a bit about what it's about? It's sort of like a journey of a free runner going through the island, all these beautiful, beautiful places, trying to sort of like showcase the island of what it actually is and showcase all like the sort of scenery because I don't, I don't think there's actually many videos out there that sort of showcase the island in a way we sort of wanted to. Especially without a motorbike in the background. Yeah, definitely, because that's what everyone sees the Isle of Man as. It's like the TT and all this sort of stuff. You went to so many different locations while you were filming. Which was your favourite? I know one of my favourites was the handstand on Milner's Tower. Because yes. we sort of got there, the weather just brightened up, the sun came out, and we were just like, yes. This is the shot. And obviously them guys were a bit like, they didn't want me to do it, but like, I'm so confident with handstands on edges. So I was like, yeah, I need to do this. Well, I was terrified when I saw it and I had goosebumps just watching. How long were you holding the handstand for, do you think? I had to do it like six or seven times, but each one was roughly around like uh, five to 12 seconds. You're just lucky it wasn't windy. Yeah, it was a little windy, but like... You can kind of catch it. You just sort of like use your fingers to hold you in. So one of my favourite parts of it was the handstand rocks when you're just literally on your arms and you didn't quite get it the first time. So you sat there and then you go and do it again (laughs) perfectly. And I love the fact that actually you show that you don't always get it 100% right. It was brilliant. Yeah. 
That is the case, like, but um, it's just repetition. Over and over again, you'll draw the move and that's when you pick it up. And how do you feel about this newfound celebrity now? I don't have a clue, like, it's, I'm just quite blown away with the response. I just didn't expect people to like it this much. And so what's next then? I just want to keep making more videos, literally, like, keep releasing all these different, like, sort of crazy things. I don't know, I'm just really onto, like, making videos that haven't been seen before. I'd just like to ask the final question. When you next come over to the Isle of Man, could you possibly come up to Max Radio and uh, maybe the Women's Day team, we could all go outside and have a try at some of these free running skills that you do? Sounds good to me. <laughs> I think there may be Definitely. a few bruises or broken legs, though. That's the only problem. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You'll be fine, like, I'll teach you the way. Are you concerned about your children mimicking your bad habits? Well, the charity is warning that British parents are unaware of the risk of children copying their drinking habits while on holiday. Now, this survey has been carried out by DrinkAware and it's found that 44% of mums and dads say they've seen their kids mimic their behaviour, such as saying things like cheers or pretending to sip alcohol. But more than half admitted it did not prompt them to change. Now, Fiona Seymour is from the charity which carried out the research. If you take a big sip of uh, your wine, and you give a big sigh and say, oh, I needed that, I felt really stressed. You may just inadvertently be giving your child the message that alcohol can be used as a way of relieving stress. So then, is this something that we're all guilty of and how concerned are we about our our children mimicking our bad habits, especially in relation to uh, drinking, Joe? Um, I'm going to be honest here, actually. Um, I know all my children, when they've been very little, we've always done the thing saying, oh, cheers, when they're they're having a, a drink. I mean, I would never necessarily have associated that with alcohol but this has really made me think yeah the the lady we just heard from um said obviously um has had a stressful day and relating it to a glass of wine and i i know so many people that do do that that said you know i've had a really bad day and they go for the wine bottle and yes it is in front of the children i'm not a big drinker um i do go out and have the odd night out with the girls but you know at home i don't tend to drink at home at all and um, my kids very often see me having a no alcohol beer um because i enjoy that and um you know i in fact i know that my 14 year old daughter is quite happy that i don't drink and she's got no interest in it at the moment whatsoever whereas a lot of her friends are really quite keen to drink and i just wonder whether that is because she doesn't see me often drink and it's not something that she's that used to I don't know. I'm, do you know, this has really worried me, actually, because my boys are really massively into cycling. Um, they watch Tour de France and they watch all sort of cycling race meetings. And very often at the end, they will see people standing on the podium and shaking the, the champagne around and they pretend to do that. And I think, oh, no, is that wrong? I don't know. I would be a bit of a cynic about this, obviously, but I don't think there's anything wrong with having a drink in front of your children. I think it's a perfectly normal part done responsibly of our kind of society so I don't think we should be hiding it away I think there's much more danger if we suddenly make having a glass of wine at the end of the day something secretive and something that we should be ashamed of and not tell anyone about I totally agree because what you're basically saying is everything in moderation which is the rule of life um, I do think it's right I mean I, I don't choose to hide it whatsoever it's just that I don't really drink from home so it's just something she's be used to seeing but um, I think there is a lot of you know mums that tend to have a bottle of wine in the evening and you know a glass of wine absolutely I agree with it the French do it and apparently it's very good for you to have a glass of red wine every day but a bottle again it's not really in moderation is it I think yeah the key line to pull that face Kate I think the key um, point here is 
being responsible, isn't it? And, you know, just having a, a healthy attitude towards drinking generally and also having a healthy attitude to how you talk about it with your children surely it's better that you know if they go out when they are 16 17 and like a lot of teenagers and I'm sure like many of us do get into a situation where they have had perhaps a little bit too much to drink that they are able to phone you up and say look mum or dad or whoever it is looking after them that I've had you know a a glass of wine too many or whatever it is probably not wine was it when you're 17 but be able to phone you and ask for help and tell you where they are rather than as I say kind of keeping it secretly hidden away. Lynn what were your drinking habits like in your early teenage years? No? (laughs) (laughs) Not something you want to discuss anyway. (laughs) You should have just said absolutely fine there. Yeah (laughs) Yeah. wonderful. Um, I mean Wendy you say um, obviously you can't drink now Um, did you drink at all when you were sort of in your early teenage years? No I was a really good girl and didn't have a drink until my 18th birthday. Do we Honest, honestly, <laughs> honestly, um, but then I started to notice a pattern with headaches, which then became seizures. So no, you know, you say that with headaches as well, and that brings me on to a point. Um, we were talking about drinking, and it's the hangover the next day. I think there's nothing worse than for kids to actually see their parents totally hungover. And um, that's something that I'm very aware of as well. I know that I really suffer and I don't like my children to see it at all because, yeah, I just... uh, Well, anyway, I'm going to bring Beth in at this point. Yeah, Beth, have you ever um, perhaps been a little worse for wear on a Sunday morning and maybe just given your children iPads and sat them in front of the television? I don't know. All I'm going to say is you were there as well. (laughs) (laughs) There's been a really interesting debate over the past few days about whether or not a woman needs to be a mother in order to be a good leader. Now it centres on two of the Labour Party's main women, Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall, who are both vying for the leadership of that party. In a blog on the Huffington Post called Why as a Parent I'm Backing Yvette Cooper as Labour's Next Leader, Helen Goodman MP has said... As a working mum, she understands the pressures on modern family life. We need a leader who knows what challenges ordinary people face day to day and who is committed to helping them. But this opinion has caused a social media storm. It's still being debated under the Twitter hashtag ParentGate. John Woodcock, who is a prominent supporter of Miss Kendall, demanded to know if Mrs Cooper had anything to do with the piece and said he was looking forward to the day someone tells a man they're voting for him because he has a kid and the other guy doesn't. He says it will be equally sad then too. Other people have asked, really, is this what it's come to? And a spokesperson for Yvette Cooper, who has got three children, has said this. I don't think talking about family finances childcare, the sandwich generation, youth mental health, child protection and online and women and children as victims of crime is a low blow. We don't choose the headlines. The piece is all about the issues Yvette has based her campaign and her career around. There is no reference to any other candidate. So what do you think? Isn't it a fair point that a woman who's juggled the demands of children around her work will have a better understanding of what it's like for many women who are juggling family and the workplace? Or while you need a a lot of things to be a great politician, having children isn't necessarily one of them. What do you reckon, Jo? A bit divided on it, to be fair. Um, I do feel that uh, you're a lady that doesn't have children 
um, maybe because she, A, simply doesn't want them or also because she can't have them. So I think it's unfair to obviously um, judge her on that alone. Um, would I vote for somebody if they were a mother compared to if they weren't a mother? I don't, I don't know. I actually don't know. I think I can relate, obviously, to a person that's had children and, and she is a mother because, obviously, I am one um, and I may have felt differently when I didn't have children. So I just, not making any sense am I I'm very very divided on this one I, do, I don't really know I think it does take I think when you become a mother you become a very different person but it, it depends on what she's fighting for what obviously she wants to rule um, if she wants to bring things in about being a working parent for instance then of course being a mother she's going to have an understanding of it more so I think the, the point that was made about the fact that we don't necessarily think of men and then think oh are they a father therefore I'll vote for him is quite a good one Howard what do you think? Yeah, I think that's valid enough, isn't it? I know there's a difference in role between mother and father, but it should be a shared responsibility. And Obviously, the vast majority of men are be going out, and yes, people don't say, oh, he's a dad, he's going to be better for that. Clearly, I think what Joe was saying, yes, I would tend to agree. If, if there are issues about working mothers and you actually are a working mother, surely it would stand to reason you, you would appreciate those problems more than a, a woman who'd never experienced those pressures. Having said that, should that enter into the judgment when it comes to the leadership of the Labour Party or should it just be the person who's going to be the best leader regardless? Do you think people maybe voted for David Cameron because he does have children? I don't think I wouldn't, they, they I would wouldn't have judged have, him on that, as you say. I wouldn't have thought so, no. I wouldn't have thought so. Although I think from, from maybe you know, a man's point of view, from Mr Cameron's point of view, I think when he, I think he had the son who died, didn't he, a, a few years ago, that was obviously in the media. It must have been a shocking time for them, very upset. It, it, it I'm sure, perhaps humanised him. I think, you know, politicians are sometimes seen as they're just politicians. You can throw whatever you want at them, in particular if you're at the, the upper echelons in national politics. And I think that perhaps humanised him. Thought, oh, gosh, he is, he is a father. He's just a dad like millions of other dads. But then also maybe people might be looking at it that um, if she is a mother, is she going to be able to put in the amount of hours? Is she going to be able to do the job effectively because she's got so many other things going on in her life? That's a fair question. And, I mean, and she does have a child and obviously the, the, she needs to be with that child for at least a proportion of the time, surely. Well, she has three children, but three um, children. I guess, you know, people move on. And, and as you, you said earlier, Nicola, you know, maybe you have very different demands when you have very young children. Those children might be slightly more grown up now. You know, I, th I don't know. But then the notion of family and politics, and this is something you said um, when we were discussing this just before we came on air, it's not new. People um, have always expected to see that the politicians being photographed with their family because that's what sells them, really. Yeah, they trot out their, you know, their wives and their daughters and show what good family men they are mm. so I suppose there's currency in you know I'm a working mother I suppose it's like that adage if you want something done ask a busy woman I guess it's like a step on from that isn't it you know she's showing that she's this very capable working mother she can run a family and she has an idea what it's like for other working mothers I suppose the thing I, I'm uneasy with is the idea that you need to have experience of something in order to have empathy for other people I mean by virtue of, of empathy you shouldn't need experience to put your yourself in those that person's shoes and a good politician should be able to know how it might feel for all of the constituents I mean 
you you might know what it's like to be a busy working mother but do you know what it's like to be a single mother on benefits do you know what it's like to be the mother of a very disabled child and not to be able to work because of that so I suppose just because you're a, a mother or a working mother doesn't mean you know what it's like for all mothers when you think about representation I suppose if you use the Isle of Man as an example we've only got two women um, in the House of Keys and so that's certainly not it doesn't reflect Manx society particularly, so you do hope that the person who is reflecting your area has got some empathy whether or not they've been in, in your situation. We asked this on Facebook and um, we came back with a comment just saying, you know, quite simply, it's such a narrow-minded philosophy. We've had a text in from somebody saying, with an MP husband, she has no idea of the problems of a normal working mother. And I just wonder whether we have, as a society, or not the Isle of Man, but just generally painted ourselves into a corner whereby, obviously... A woman has every right to have a career and a profession and go out to work the, the same as a man, and I would totally defend that. But we now seem to have got to the stage where there might be some women who don't want to do that and would be quite happy just to be a homemaker and bring up children, if that was her choice, but feels she's unable to because now it seems an awful lot of people say we couldn't live the style where we're wanting to live a lifestyle without two incomes coming in. And I think we're going back to the point of we're judging you know, we're, we're again judging people on whether they're a mother or whether they're not, whereas actually we should be judging them on just being a person and doing their job. So maybe we should just stop being so judgmental. And Margaret Thatcher was a mother. You probably gathered by now I'm a huge fan of motorsport. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, really? Mm-hmm. No. Just ever so slightly, Gosh. maybe. Did I tell you I might be going to the MotoGP soon, Ben? Yeah, anyway, you mentioned it. Moving on. Uh, yeah, what came in the news today um, I was really interested about because it was to do with Lewis Hamilton, of which I'm a huge fan. I just think he's a, an incredible legend. But there we go. That's my own point of view. And I know that uh, it's not one that maybe Howard shares with me. No, the reason why he was in the news today was because Gary Lineker hit out at Wimbledon for not allowing Lewis Hamilton into the Royal Box because he wasn't wearing the correct dress code. Did he so see what course, he was wearing? Hang on. Okay. Are you interrupting me now? Yeah, yeah, tell, yeah. Okay, I can feel a debate coming on about this one. Uh, he wasn't wearing a jacket and tie, of course, of which the gorgeous David Beckham was. Um, but he was wearing an uh, attractive floral shirt, chinos, terrible shoes, um, and a straw hat. I mean, the straw hat goes at tennis, surely. Um, but you know what? I want to discuss this because I want to know from you, what do you think about this? Do you think that he should have been wearing a jacket and tie to be allowed into the Royal Box? He, there is a photo of him standing inside the restaurant area watching over Centre Court. So he's obviously got through certain barriers before he got to the Royal Box, but he wasn't allowed entry into the Royal Box. Of course, he missed the uh, match between Federer, 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 Federer and Djokovic which I think is quite sad because, you know what, he's brought British motorsport up so well. I mean, he's doing such a great job. Do you think he should have been allowed in? Doesn't say much about his fashion sense, though, does it? I mean, you can have he all can the He can wear what he likes. Really? Really? Did he see it? looks good. Yeah, really? it looks great. Yeah, it, really? was, it wasn't really that much, was it? It was sort of, it was sort of Wurzel Gummidge lookalike, in essence, <laughs> wasn't it? Uh, I mean, you say attractive, attractive floral shirt, I'd go more for you know, Oxfam reject. The trousers, fine. Shoes, who cares? Uh, the hat, I mean, the end Say of the day... Say it as it is, the, Howard. The hat is, uh, I think we were saying before me, looking at the picture, this whole thing... I'm a great fan of Panama and straw hats and, and think we're worn well, they are great. But there is a certain thing, they should be worn properly, and my dad always had it as well, and that men of a certain age... So if you get very old or, or even my age or something and not fantastically trendy, if you tried to wear the hat as Lewis was with the brim turned up all the way around... You would look like a scarecrow or just, frankly, stupid. 
you should he have looks the, cool. the brim turned down at the front. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I think you might be a teeny weeny bit biased there. Slightly. I could be, I could be wrong. OK, so Andy Roddick has hit out um, because he believes that Hamilton should have stuck to the invite rules. So thinking about this, do we think that when there is a dress code, no matter who you are, what you've done, you should stick to them no matter what? We had this debate a little while ago, didn't we, when we were talking about um, Cannes and, and women having to wear high heels and being turned away um, from certain premiers because they weren't. And so why should it be any different for, for men? I mean, if he's read the invitation, then he exactly. should know what he has to wear. Exactly. And, and I think the thing is, yes, I, I've never been invited to the Royal Box. Surprise, surprise. I have been to Wimbledon several times. I did have one year, we were very lucky, well, two, a couple of years, in fact, um, uh, several years ago, we had debenture lounge badges. We weren't debenture holders, but a, a very kind friend had given us some. And yes, if you go into the grounds, you're saying dress like Lewis or dress like I was, you can get into the grounds and pass the stewards. No problem, as long as you're dressed and obviously not indecently dressed you can have on and you see going around the grounds you see everything from people immaculately turned out with high heels or full suit whatever the case may be all the way through to sneakers and you know shorts and t-shirts as we might be if you went into the venture holders lounge it was a different kettle of fish you would not get in there regardless of whether you had your badge on unless you had a jacket and tie on and that would have been quite obvious to Lewis regardless of whether he's a superstar in sport or not that they were the regulations and so I'm afraid you know what's the point of having regulations if you're just going to waive them because someone's famous well I have to say I'm with Gary Lineker because he says the decision was England at its pompous worst and I'm sorry I do believe that it it should be smart dress code smart Mm. dress code is smart dress and I agree with that but I think a jacket and tie in in what was the heat it was over 30 degrees of heat you know within luckily for them on centre court at Wimbledon and for guys to sit there in jackets and ties I think it's now looking a little bit too pompous sorry David Beckham seemed to manage it looked perfectly cool to me Oh, oh, you've got her there it's a really difficult one that one because I can't say a word against David Beckham however um, I think a smart dress code should be just a smart dress code. I don't think we need to implement jacket and tie. It's like the bars and restaurants that you go to around the world and they mm. insist that you wear a jacket and tie. And I think for businessmen that have to wear a jacket and tie all week long, in actual fact, they can wear smart dress, which is a shirt and um, chinos or shirt and slacks, whatever it is, without needing to wear the tie and the jacket. What do you think, Miles? Right, I think it's, a, I think it's come down to respect. If you've been invited to join the Royal Box and they've asked you to wear a particular dress code, then out of respect, you would do as you were told. Insofar as Miles has joined us today wearing a shirt, tie and suit yes, jacket. I have. Just out of respect to yourselves, <laughs> I've dressed appropriately to come and women today. But that's the interesting thing, isn't it? I was thinking that before, looking, thinking, obviously you look very smart and you're dressed as you'd imagine an advocate would be. Presumably you could do your job just as effectively in shorts and uh, with a, a full, Panama hat as and well, a full shirt and a Panama hat, but it, w- it wouldn't be the dress that your clients no. would expect. And presumably, equally, an employee came in wearing jeans and sneakers and said, "I'm ready for work." They'd be sent home and told to dress appropriately. Well, uh, actually, on that, we actually have in our employment contracts a dress code. So we do have a dress code. It has actually been um, researched that if you do wear smart clothes to work, that you tend to work better than if you are perhaps working, you know, (laughs) best laughing at me because I'm in my yoga stuff. I said nothing. (laughs) I said nothing. Unfortunately, you could just read my face. Yes, as always. Um, but they do say that if you, t- you know, if you're working from home, that you should make sure that you make an effort to sit at the desk and actually work at the computer or whatever you're doing, and um, because you work more effectively. Yeah, I think so. I think it gets, you into, it gets you into work mode. 
you, you, you're wearing working clothes, whatever job you do, the working clothes can change, but you're in your working outfit and you, you've come to do work. Essentially, I think what we've uh, discovered this afternoon, Joe, is you're wrong, and uh, we're all right. If anybody uh, would like to uh, back Joe up at all, I mean, do do feel free. You only have to mention the word high school, and I'm virgin breakdown at the moment. I'm just being hit with both barrels. I think Ryan's um, an August baby, so he's one of the youngest in the class. So one, I don't feel that he's as you know, as mature as the rest of the class. And second, he's my only child. So I've got only child syndrome. He's always going to be my baby. And how does he feel about it? He is so ready. He's so ready to move. The high school that he's going to, um, I can only speak for Balakameen because this is the school that he's he's going to, um, Miss Burnett and the team, they've been fantastic with the transition. It's not like when I went to high school, you leave school and six weeks later get put in this massive school, new people, new faces. Since January last year, they've started the transition with the children, which has been great. Balakameen staff coming into the primary schools and doing lessons They've been up there on transition days. They've had their lunch up there. So he's he's more than excited now. He's so ready. Well, on today's programme, as you may have guessed, we're talking about that big move from primary to secondary school. What does the Department of Education over here do to make that transition as smooth as possible? And how can parents help bridge that gap? We're joined live today by two head teachers and the Department of Education's school improvement advisor. So if you've got any questions or comments, you can get in touch throughout the programme. You can email womentoday at manxradio.com. You can text 166177. Go to the Women's Day Facebook page or follow us at MR Women's Day on Twitter, where there are some very fetching photographs of some young ladies at their first day of secondary school. Delightful, delightful young ladies, I think, looking very youthful. Yes, well, speak for yourself. Um, It is a huge step, though, isn't it? Um, Moving from that secure, familiar environment of primary school to the big unknown of secondary school. I mean, that's just for the parents, really. But the good news is, as we just heard on the uh, two o'clock news just before this show, um, the Isle of Man is apparently leading the way when it comes to this important transition. We're going to be hearing how and why throughout the programme, but since it is a few years since Joe and I made the move, and maybe not so many since Kate did, um, I thought maybe to start off with it might be interesting to reflect on our own experience. And Joe, what was it like for you? Oh, it's so different for me, I suppose, because um, than you guys, I was uh, at Onkin School and absolutely loved the whole experience of it. And when I was ten, I had to leave all my friends behind, and I went to boarding school in England, and I absolutely loved it. It was great, and it was the best thing for me for sure. Um, but I, yeah, I do remember that first day. And my parents, oh my goodness me, it actually brings tears to my eyes now thinking about it. But I can actually remember my parents leaving me and driving away. And I wasn't then going to see them for another six weeks. And um, yeah, it was it was very, very difficult because I didn't know anybody, of course, that I was going to school with. Whereas the luxury of being here is it's such a close-knit community that you then all move up together. And even if you've not been at school together, you then, of course, know other people perhaps from around the island too. Um, so yeah, very different experience, I suppose. 
I suppose it was actually slightly different for me because I'd moved primary schools a couple of times so I was kind of used to being the new girl um, in a school but it is incredibly daunting I think when you stand in that um, that big school and look down the corridors and just think how on earth am I ever going to remember where I'm supposed to go who I'm supposed to be with because it's, it's that massive shift in, in how you're actually taught and moving classes for different lessons and things like that it is just so different I remember getting my planner on uh, my first day I think it was and looking at my time table and just thinking I am never ever going to understand what this actually means and where I'm going to have to be um, for me I went to primary school in Laxey and then went up to Ramsey Grammar School um, so I guess I had gone from quite a small village school to, to a big one but last night I thought who would remember better this move for me than my mum so I asked her about my move up to high school I remember there being a lot at primary school about you know it's a big step to go to secondary school because you were at Laxey you had the opportunity to go to either of the Douglas schools or Ramsey and your dad and I had decided you were going to go to Ramsey but obviously it had to be your decision so you went round all three schools in fact I seem to remember you actually went round Balakamine twice just to make sure that it wasn't the school for you and a lot of your friends from Laxey were going to Ramsey and a lot of your friends from the year ahead of you the year above you were already at Ramsey so it really wasn't much of a choice but it had to be your choice that's the first time you've ever told me that I genuinely thought I had a choice (laughs) you did you did have a choice I Um, didn't have a choice well if you'd absolutely (laughs) said I'm going to go to Park Road we would probably have gone along with it (laughs) just for an easy life Yep, they lied to me. They lied to me until last <laughs> night. I discovered the truth. Thanks, Mum. I hope there are no more lies to be uncovered. Um, well, we are talking today about the transition from primary to secondary school. So let's now meet our guests uh, who are live in the studio. Jan Gimbert is the Department of Education's Improvement Advisor. Jan, do you remember your first day of big school? I do, and I had a bit of a different experience probably to everybody else because I went to Ramsey Grammar for one year and then for my second year, QE2 opened, so I had two transitions and I did find actually going back to QE2 and being with all my friends who I'd been with at primary school a much more positive experience than actually was all going in separate directions for that first year of uh, high school at that particular time. And how seriously was the notion of transition taken when you made that move? I can't remember an awful lot about it because it's such a long time ago now, but uh, I think I just turned up um, on the morning of my first day at Ramsey Grammar um, in my uniform and got on the bus and did what I was expected to do and got on with it for a year. Um, But no one really explained what the differences and what the similarities between primary and secondary would be like, you know, the expectations in terms of homework and organising myself. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a different experience then, a very long time ago, compared to now. Uh, jo Richardson is also with us this afternoon. She's been the head teacher of Onkin Primary School since 2008. Do you remember your move, Jo? I do. Um, I was at Fairfield School at the time, and I made the transition up to Balakameen. I was the only one in A3 from my primary school, so I was all on my own. But the really good thing that came out of it was I met one of my really good friends on day one and we still do lunch every Saturday now. So that's really, really good. But it was it was daunting. It was, as Jan said, it was all about all of a sudden it was homework. My mother brought me a briefcase because she thought that was what you were supposed to have. So, yeah, spot the person with the briefcase on the first day. Yeah, that was me and uh, in my sparkly uniform and everything else. 
with the clerk shoes on my feet and doing all of that. It was just what you did and, yeah, a bit scary. Did you get upset when you didn't come home with a pay packet? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Nobody explained that bit to me. Um, from your point of view then, as a head teacher of a primary school, how emotional do you get when you have to say goodbye to your year sixes? Oh, it's horrid. It's, it doesn't get any easier either. I keep saying to my year sixes at the moment, they, they are just stunning. They really are. They are fantastic. And they've been with me. One of them pointed out to me the other day that they are my very first group that I've seen all the way through. And so they're mine. They're my babies. Um, but every single year, it's incredibly difficult. It really is. And you do your leavers um, assemblies and you go to the leavers party and you're making all the awards and everything else. And it's really difficult to go. They're not mine anymore. But the good thing is, though, that I still pop into St. Indians an awful lot. So I get to see them and they're used to coming around the corner and finding me around the corner so it we works just, we just had a text in from William who says Miss Richardson sounds very posh on the radio she's the lovely head of our school hip hip hooray <laughs> <laughs> should he be in school <laughs> is that one of the pupils brownie it's points William. there I think um, well our final guest this afternoon is Keith Wynne Stanley who's head teacher of Castle Russian High School before that he was deputy head at Balakameen and before that QE2 uh, do you remember your first day Keith I do yes um, similar sorts of experiences I don't think the, the word transition or um, the idea of moving from primary to secondary was particularly big in Peel in the early 1980s. Um, I remember the only piece of advice I was given at the end of my stay in year six, um, and it wasn't even called year six in those days, was it, um, was to be good, which perhaps was specific advice aimed um, particularly at my, <laughs> the way I had been operating at Peel Cloth Workers. Um, and then I remember the first day, I can still think back now, um, with two good friends, and we um, definitely had to walk up together and we took a, a bit of a circuitous route to QE2 because we were very worried about the older students on the way up there in our, yeah, as, as um, Joe says, in bright, shiny new shoes and maybe inappropriate uh, choice of luggage. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to our amazing guests. And as ever, it's never too late for you to get involved. Head over to Facebook, find the Women Today Facebook page, and you can comment there, or you can follow us at MR Women Today on Twitter. And you can listen again to the full programmes on manxradio.com or join us every weekday live from just after 2 o'clock. Women Today, brought to you by citywing.com for your next flight away.